Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, Making Your World Better. Well, every CEO and executive director of a nonprofit, and, and let alone a for-profit organization, knows the importance of constantly casting vision and constantly clarifying the mission so that their team is motivated and excited and inspired to keep moving forward. Well, the guest today on our podcast uh, reminds us that it's not just about casting vision and mission, but it's re-recruiting your team. In fact, you're re-recruiting your donors and your volunteers, and she talks about why that's so important and how to do that. Um, Vivian Hexter, along with Linda Hartley, are co-authors of a new book entitled Big Impact, Insights and Stories from America's Nonprofit Leaders. Big Impact is about nonprofit leaders who have found solutions to some of the world's greatest and most vexing societal challenges. The book explores how these changemakers are implementing solutions in their communities across the U.S. and even around the world. I think you're going to really enjoy today's show. Well, thanks, Vivian, for being on the show today and calling in from New York. Um, I'm excited to hear more about this book. And first, let me just ask, what prompted you to write this book in the first place? Linda and I formed uh, H2 Growth Strategies about two years ago, and we asked ourselves, what could we do to give back to the sector where we've spent most of our professional lives, as well as introduce H2 Growth to the world? So that, that was one reason. Another is that we've worked with fantastic nonprofit leaders our whole careers, and they have a lot of wisdom, those leaders, and they often don't get the press that they should because they don't have the marketing or advertising dollars that corporations do. And so we really wanted to amplify the voices of the leaders who are making a difference in the world and in the U.S. and in their communities every day so that more people would know about the great work and also be inspired because I think it's important uh, to be inspired in daily life. I could agree with you more. I think inspiration is uh, so important and uh, you can work in a lot of places and do a lot of things, but if you're not inspired at what you do, um, that's, that goes a long way. So I agreed. Um, and so you think about your book, what were some of the key findings of your research and what surprised you the most? What happened was we realized that as we interviewed and we did about almost 50 interviews with key nonprofit leaders around the country, everyone from the president of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund to the CEO of Goodwill Industries International to the president of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. So we found as we did these interviews that there was a theme emerging, and that theme was about social change and how you make successful, lasting social change. And we developed a framework 
that I think we're going to talk about a bit later for um, making that change. And we think it applies if you're trying to make change in your own community, you as an individual, you as a citizen trying to make change, as well as if you're a leader trying to make change globally. So that so that those that was like the key key finding, right? Is that there are these principles, if you will, for making change. What surprised us the most was not only the emotional intelligence of the leaders, which is incredibly high in general, but also that something like 25% of them ended up in the sector, the nonprofit sector as a result of personal tragedy of some sort, whether that was the death of a sibling or the early death of a parent or a great illness, that somehow they had ended up in the sector because they had experienced these traumas. For example, Tara Perry, who runs the National Court-Appointed Special Advocates for Children, was herself a foster child. And what CASA does is it recruits volunteers to represent foster children in court. So that, that's a very, very direct correlation, right, between her own experience and, uh, and her career. Uh, there are others. I could give you lots of examples. So we were just surprised that a full quarter of the people we interviewed uh, had um, had ended up in the sector because of tragedy. I think it's really interesting. You know, we've had a lot of people on the show, and I've had, seen that as well. And I've heard people tell their story of why they got involved with their nonprofit or why they started a nonprofit. And you're right. It's typically something that's either a tragic situation or it's certainly a personal connection to something that's happened in their life. And it wasn't always positive, And then they turned that around to something good and they wanted to change the world in some way based on that. So that's fascinating. You found the same thing. Um, so you've already kind of shared this a little bit, but uh, maybe share one or two examples of nonprofit organizations or perhaps nonprofit leaders that are really solving today's biggest problems in creative ways. Well, the book is full of them, of course. And I would say that Fred Blackwell, who is the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation, which is a large community foundation, one of the largest, I think, in the country. So Fred has put all of the weight of the foundation behind the drive for racial equity in the San Francisco Bay Area, which, of course, is – so racial inequity, of course, is incredibly pronounced in the San Francisco Bay Area because of all the tech billionaires – and there's a re one of the ways that this shows up is in um, housing, right, and the lack of affordable housing. And what Fred has done is he has – so he's, he's decided to put the weight of the foundation. This is their sole focus for the next 10 years. And what he's doing is he's – he understands that it's a, a, a challenge that's much bigger than just the foundation – and what he's doing is he's attempting to build a coalition of organizations for profit, nonprofit, and government in the Bay Area to address this issue. And he's he's well suited to this because he spent most of his life in the Bay Area and was actually involved in creating 
a uh a very highly uh regarded um, low income housing complex in the bay area and so he's uniquely suited to the task so he's someone who stands out for us for me another person i would say is Dan Gross, who was until recently the president of the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence. So we, we hear a lot about gun violence. We hear too much about gun violence, right? And we, we hear about the mass shootings and, but the truth is that gun violence is way down in the U.S. And I think it's fair to say that Dan's approach to uh, preventing gun violence, which is based on his experience in advertising, uh, is an incredibly creative way of thinking about this issue and, in fact, acting on the issue. And, you know, Dan is is not probably wholly responsible, but at least partially responsible for thinking about or speaking about gun violence um, as a public health issue as opposed to a criminal justice issue. So, in, and in transforming it from one to the other, he's made it uh, much easier to talk about it and act on it and pass legislation about it. Uh, so, so he's another one who stands out. Well, I'm glad you shared those two examples. I'm thinking it's going to whet the appetite for my listeners to get your book and find out more examples. And speaking of the book, you develop seven principles for every nonprofit leader to implement in order to bring about large-scale change. Uh, these are the seven. So for those who have not read the book yet, here are the seven that you list out. Sharpen your leadership skills. Ensure your own house is in order. Be crystal clear about your goal and articulate it persuasively. Then campaign on many fronts. Build broad-based coalitions. Persist. And finally, leverage your success. So all seven sound fascinating, but maybe would you say, <clears throat> could you rank the top two most important out of these seven? The first one that jumps to mind is persist. <laughs> and I think, you know, the problems that these leaders are addressing did not be, get created in a day, and they're certainly not going to get solved in a day. And I, I think that, so that's a, a message for every non-profit leader who's trying to make change. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And even more than that, one of our interviewees talked about losing forward. So his contention is that you can't win every battle, uh, which is maybe obvious, but uh, it's true. Um, but he, he then he says, you can't win every battle, but when you lose a battle, try to lose forward. So take the learnings from the loss, look at it as a step on the way to winning. So recontextualize, if you will, the losses to uh, to forward your goal. So that so persist is one that really stands out for me. The other is ensure your own house is in order. And what we mean by that is ensure your own organization is functional. And, you know, we're hearing a lot these days about sexual harassment and, you know, there's all kinds of stuff swirling around about the workplaces. You've got Uber and it's, you know, not paying its drivers properly, et cetera, et cetera. I don't mean to single out Uber, but I, I just give it as, as an example. Uh, and so 
I think it's if you're trying to do good, right, if you're trying to make social change and you're doing it from an organization where your employees are not fairly and equitably paid, where the work environment is hostile, where, you know, I could go on and on, right, about what makes uh, uh, the house be out of order. But I think it's really, really important for nonprofit leaders to pay attention to the culture of their organizations. And uh, this is a preoccupation of the leaders that we interview. They are absolutely obsessed with making sure that their organizations are functional. Well, um, and one of the things you mentioned here is large-scale change. How do you define that? Uh, and give us an example of one or two of what this looks like in a nonprofit organization. Large-scale change is it's about um, like uh, changing, to, to me, large-scale change means changing societal norms. And again, that takes time, whether it's reducing gun violence, right? So I talked a little bit about how we had had to change the way we talk about gun violence um, before we could make significant progress on gun violence. So lowering gun violence, ending childhood hunger in the U.S. is another one. So Share Our Strength is an organization that is working to end childhood hunger in the U.S., and you might know them by their campaign, No Kid Hungry. Uh, and what they are, what they've managed to do is over, they've managed to get to a point where they believe that within seven or eight years, they will have ended childhood hunger in the U.S. And that's been the result of a, you know, years-long campaign that involved uh the government to some extent involved community-based organizations and schools. Uh, and so that, that to me is large-scale change, right? So that's solving a problem that doesn't need to exist in the U.S., but has existed probably since we were founded. And um, so that's another way that we define large-scale change. Excellent. And is there any other examples of nonprofits that are, like you said, truly changing um, the playing field, if you want to put it in a different analogy, um, on an international scale? So the, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation is focused, very focused on climate change, major global issue. And they, they're one of the largest organizations in the United one of the largest foundations in the United States and they are really working of course one foundation no matter how large is not going to uh, you know affect climate change by itself but uh, by seeding the correct organizations and really working on the ground in places like India which is one of the places where they work they can really uh, make a difference. They all, one of the things that foundations also have is convening power, uh, and that's something that the Hewlett Foundation does a lot of, is convene different uh, stakeholder groups and constituencies to think about and work, at, work on the issue of climate change. So that's another 
another example. Well, one of the key quotes from the book is this one from Tom Dente, CEO of Humentum, which is a training and advocacy organization for international NGOs. You quote him as saying this, people always talk about communication, but I don't think that's the most important thing. It needs to be more. It really is re-recruiting. You're always re-recruiting people to the mission, to the value they provide, and to the roles across all levels. So talk about that. I like that quote. Um, What, in your opinion, does it look like to re-recruit? I just have to say, Rob, that is one of my favorite quotes in the book. So I'm thrilled that you picked that one out. And what Tom means is that once we recruit people into a nonprofit, I think, and I've done this, right, I've been a CEO myself, we we tend to forget that even though they're there for the mission, they constantly have to be reminded that what the mission is and what their contribution to it is, and we just can't take them for granted. That I think that's the, um, and I don't know that this is true more of nonprofits than for-profits, but some of the nonprofits I've worked in have been not the best at reminding people that the work they do is important. Some people who work in nonprofits actually, like, for example, if you work in a global nonprofit, where the work is mostly being done overseas, but you're based here in the U.S., you may never see the work being done in India, for example, right? If you're if you're a if you're a receptionist or uh, or in IT or in human resources, right? You may never actually get to be on the ground with the people who are being served. And so it's really, really important to bring that work to your staff and your board. When I, when I ran organizations and whenever I can influence clients, I always tell them or suggest to them that they bring the mission into every board meeting, whether that's having someone talk about the newest program or bringing a client in to tell his or her story. So it's, it's again, we just take for granted that people come to work in nonprofits because they love the mission, and that's true. But every day they get up and come to work, and they just need to be reminded that that they're working on something really important and that they're making a great contribution to it. You know, I have to say, you know, being an executive director, uh, there's no doubt this quote really stood out to me because I think it's so true. You know, I think sometimes even us, you know, you've been a CEO, I've been an executive director, um, we need to re-recruit ourselves almost to the mission, right? So let alone our team, uh, our donors, our board members, our volunteers. Uh, it's a fascinating uh, insight and I think that that is absolutely correct. So I uh, appreciate you talking about that. Some people are calling social entrepreneurs the new business model. In fact, in previous podcasts, I actually referenced this article in Forbes magazine that points out this, that today's young people are as concerned with making a positive impact on the world as they are with making money. A whopping 94% want to use their skills to benefit a cause. So my question to you, Vivian, is have you seen this to be the case? And if so, what is your take on this next generation of volunteers and philanthropists? I, I definitely observe this and hear it. So I don't have children myself, but I have lots of friends who do, and I have some young, young-ish friends myself. 
And now I'm, I'm perhaps seeing a sort of a skewed sample, right, because the ones that I mostly interact with are in some way already engaged with the nonprofit sector. But I do, I, I hear it and I see it all the time. So they, they really do want to both do well and do good, right? And some of them don't really care about doing well. They just want to do good, right? Which is even better, right? <laughs> uh, I'd have some of those. Um, so I think that, um, it's a good thing that they are built this way because there are going to be a lot of problems for, for them to fix, most notably perhaps climate change. So it's, it, and it's really going to take a lot of effort and many people and broad-based coalitions and campaigning on many fronts to change that, even that one uh, issue. And so my take on them is that they may be more creative about how the money gets to where it needs to go, which is really what social entrepreneurship is about. I don't really care if the money comes from a corporation or a foundation or the government or an individual. What I care is that the, is that the money get directed to the right place. And I think that that's really what this generation is focused on. And, and I also, this whole issue of earned income is a key issue, right? Whether, whether you call it, uh, social entrepreneurship or just earned income, right? Uh, you know, I think it's really important for nonprofits to try to have more of that and divert, to diversify their revenue sources so that they have more of that. And of course, it's much more difficult for some nonprofits than for others, right? If you're a social service, organization, it's much harder to generate earned income than if you're a performing arts center. So it's, uh, so I think that um, any creative ways that people have of either directing money or raising money, raising funds, you know, getting investment, whatever you want to call it, I'm, I support that. I'm all in favor of it. Well, I appreciate your answer to that. And that relates to the next question I was going to ask was, and you've kind of touched on this, but uh, because of this impact of social enterprise, do you feel like it's changing the way nonprofits do fundraising or should nonprofits change their fundraising strategy because of the growing momentum of social impact companies? So yes and yes. <laughs> uh, so I think nonprofits are, many of them, being forced to change the way they do fundraising because of this emphasis on uh, on wanting to make money while making change. And in terms of changing their fundraising strategy, it's everything from crowdfunding, right, which is not really social impact, but it's definitely a, you know, millennial-driven technique of fundraising. And I think that the whole concept of fundraising being just looking for charitable dollars, that really has to change because it's it's really more, I think, Nonprofits are being forced to think more like companies, which when they're you know, which are raising capital, right? Like startups raising capital, 
So I think that nonprofits are having to change their definition of fundraising to keep up with this uh, social impact trend. Now, that being said, I'm also a little bit skeptical about the whole idea of social entrepreneurship. I have not yet seen a a situation where philanthropy is totally replaced by something else. And so I'm a little I'm just a little bit skeptical about calling it social impact or social entrepreneurship. I do think there's some very interesting things happening, you know, with um bonds and, you know, there there are definitely some really cool things uh being experimented with. Um, but I'm just a little skeptical at, so far. I'm, I'm yet to be convinced that this is a revolution rather than an evolution. Okay, that's interesting. Well, that's I appreciate that. I'll be curious to see what my listeners think on that. But uh, it's, that's why I love getting different points of view. Um, again, my guest today has been Vivian Hexter, who, along with Linda Hartley, are co-authors of a new book entitled Big Impact, Insights and Stories from America's Nonprofit Leaders. Um, Vivian, along with Linda, also are the co-founders of H2 Growth Strategies. Um, so if people want to find out more about you, find out more about your organization or your book, where would you send them? I would send them right to our website, which is h then the number two, and then the word growth. So h2growth.com. Perfect. Okay, great. Well, Vivian, thank you for sharing your insights. I encourage my listeners to get this book. Uh, A lot of interesting insights, some great stories of some of these key nonprofits that are really making large-scale change. Um, Again, thanks for taking time uh, to call into the show today. Thank you. I wanted to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.